0: Hello and welcome to the Christmas edition, uh, sorry, the December edition of On The Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Scrooge from ICL. And I'm Glenn Cratchit from Syngenta. Whether it's soup in the spring, a barbecue
1: in the summer, or a full-on Christmas roast dinner with all the trimmings, sprouts, cranberry sauce, and all the rest of it in the winter, we'll be here to see you right. This is the eighth month of us recording this podcast for this Project Henry, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, all completed. And as you say, this is our Christmas edition, and all of those are available on all good podcast platforms. So let's take a little bit of time, sit back and give ourselves the opportunity to think about what lies ahead. A little think about the headaches that are on the horizon in December and not just those Christmas hangovers. We'll try and take a look at all the things we can do to make our lives a little easier. So let's look on that horizon where I can see Christmas quickly approaching.
0: So as always, Glenn, let's start by having a look at those climatic challenges that December might throw at each of us from over that horizon. Because we know only too well that we can't rely on our perceptions or memories to form an accurate picture about what might lie ahead.
1: Indeed. We tried to shrink this down a little bit last month, didn't we, Henry?
0: Yeah, it was dragging on a bit, Glenn, wasn't it, Um, in those earlier episodes, if we're being honest. Um, But it did feel that last month we may have hit the sweet spot. So let's just see if we can do it again, Glenn. Yeah,
1: but Henry, this is such an important part of the podcast. It really is the foundation for everything that's likely to come our way in this difficult month of December.
0: Yes, the the climatic conditions, they're always the, the key agronomic drivers. So we must discuss them in detail. And and I'm particularly looking forward um, to this month to see what December is really about. Um, is it going to be a Dickensian Christmas, Glenn, or just a nightmare?
1: Well, for, for those of you that haven't listened before, what we're going to do is we're going to run through some useful weather data for both of mine and Henry's homes. Uh, I'm in the centre of the South Coast and Henry is up there in Yorkshire. And we're gonna explore the nuances of the weather data that may affect the turf manager. But this isn't just to give people a weather forecast for our homes, Henry, and let them know how our Christmases are gonna look. It's more about pointing out the differences between our two locations and trying to really encourage people to pull out their own weather data and their own data sets study them and truly arm themselves with a useful set of figures to help them plan for the month ahead. So it doesn't really matter if you're on the west coast of Ireland or in the northwest of Scotland. Have a listen to the differences we're seeing and then try and dig a little deeper into your area and truly understand what you can expect from this time of year.
0: Okay, Glenn, fair point. So Bearing all that in mind, what have you got for us this month?
1: Well, as always, Henry, we start with the rainfall and the uh, the news is it continues to be wet. Again, for me in the south, on average, we're seeing a bit more rainfall than you are in Ilkley at this time of year. 96 millimetres on average in December for us, and an average December for you is very close to that, at 90 millimetres of rain. We've both seen drier Decembers, down to around 30 millimetres. That's probably the best you could possibly hopeful, they tend to be on the wetter side.
0: Yeah, so no real change from November then. Um, what are the agronomic odds, Glenn, of it being really wet?
1: Well, 46% of your Decembers, Henry, are above 85 millimeters, and 69% of our December's are above 85 millimetres.
0: Okay, so that points towards steady and regular rainfall, and not exactly the traditional Christmas scene, Glenn, that we we see on our Christmas cards. Correct.
1: And there's also a dramatic drop-off in evapotranspiration too, Henry. You don't see evapotranspiration rates on many Christmas cards, do you?
0: <laughs> no, Glenn. Good point. Um, so, so so, no real help going on in December. November gets wet, and in December it gets wetter.
1: Yep, sure does. Evapotranspiration has now dropped from November's dizzy heights of 17 millimetres on average for the pair of us down to us both averaging through the month of December at 13 millimetres of evapotranspiration.
0: Mm. So if drainage or worm casting or heavy play and intensive traffic are are issues for you, then it's going to get ugly in December, Glenn.
1: Yeah, we, we truly are in traffic
0: management territory now, Henry. Okay, Glenn so the, the, the picture is forming very quickly this month. And I think I can say that it's not looking Dickensian, Glenn. So what about those temperatures then? Last month, we were worried about six months of November. Is that playing out for us? Well, it
1: certainly does on the averages, Henry. I expect us to be hovering around those dangerous temperature ranges where We see a tiny little bit of turf growth, possibly, possibly not. And the development and management of microdochium patch is very much on the cards.
0: Yeah. What I found most interesting about doing this podcast, Glenn, is that each month um, we've both been on a slightly different agronomic footing um, with our own climatic conditions and the temperatures in particular being different enough enough uh, for each of us to need to be taking different approaches, especially in terms of uh, what technologies we might be using. Are we in the same place yet, Glenn, or are those temperature differences still showing?
1: Uh, The differences are still there, Henry, but agronomically, there comes a point when they're no longer significant. Uh, December can still deliver some mild temperatures, but the chances of a warm day have greatly reduced for both of us. The highest temperatures we've seen in December are about 14 to 15 degrees. So whether you're 14.2 or 15.1, that really doesn't make any odds. Um, But those are the max temperatures. Um, the, The thing we need to kind of keep an eye on is how long we stay at those higher temperatures.
0: Indeed, yes. Uh, there does seem to have been some exceptionally mild December periods up mo- up north in recent years.
1: Yeah, 2015 was a standout year. We, we saw down here on the south coast 31 days in a row. So every day that month, the temperature was above 10 degrees at some point in the day. That same year, 2015, you saw 16 days in the month where you were above 10 degrees, too.
0: Yeah, that is ridiculous, isn't it? And, um, you know, both of those are in the area where we might expect to see some turf growth. But those are the exceptions, Glenn, aren't they? How many days on average do we get above 10 degrees uh, centigrade in December?
1: Well, over the last 13 years, Henry, uh, going back through the numbers, the average for you is four days in December you will be above 10 degrees. But for us on the south coast, it's about 13 days.
0: Well, that feels a bit more like it. Um, but what if we go around the UK and Ireland? Any big differences there, Glenn?
1: Uh, well, it does appear that you're in one of the coldest spots in the country, Henry. Um, so if we start in the west and we go over to Ireland, over to Galway, basically an average of 14 days above 10 degrees.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a lot, actually, isn't it? Similar to you in terms of temperatures, but I would presume... A lot wetter as well.
1: Yeah, but we also see those temperatures in the southeast. If you go down to Sandwich, down in the far southeast corner of the country, they get 14 days above 10 degrees on average in December too.
0: Okay, and what about the proper north, you know, at the top of Scotland? Um, How do they sit? Well, Wick up on the
1: southeast coast sees about four days every December above 10 degrees, Henry. Uh,
0: Same as you. You know, I think that that would be less than that. But I suppose that's the maybe the influence of the mild-ish weather coming up the Atlantic at that time.
1: Yeah, I think the coastal impacts of these things will affect these. If you maybe if you came inland slightly, it would change. But I haven't dug those thing figures out. If we travel all the way down to Guernsey, uh, just to go to the far extreme south-wise, uh, they see about 20 days above 10 degrees every December down there.
0: Mm, that's, 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 that's a very high average, isn't it? And, you know... Uh, we shouldn't forget the Channel Islands, obviously, especially with my grandfather being a proper jerseyman, um, but a whole different set of challenges down there. Um, OK, that was interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit more of a feel for things now in December um, and possibly some minor growth opportunities, which might be available for different locations, uh, except it seems at Ilkley and Wick, uh, which is interesting. Um, but let's keep moving and look at those average temperatures rather than those potential days above 10 degrees C. What are the average temperatures looking like in December, Glenn?
1: Well, your average daytime temperature in Ilkley, Henry, is 7 degrees. um, And our average on the south coast is 9 degrees. Uh, Overnight temperatures obviously start to drop too. They start moving downwards during this month. Um, We can see some low extremes pop up through the month of December. Ilkley experienced in 2000. 2010, uh, the lowest temperature you've seen in the last 13 years of minus five. And in Winchester, down here at my home, we saw minus seven and a half in that same year, 2010.
0: Uh, Very good. So that same trend again that... um... Uh, you down south are more likely to experience um, greater extremes than I am further north, um, especially when it comes to those low temperatures.
1: Uh, Yeah, but it doesn't play out in the averages, however, does it, Henry? Ilkley's overnight December average is 1.8 degrees and Winchester's overnight average is 2.9 degrees. So one degree warmer for us at night and two degrees warmer for us during the day.
0: Okay, but it is clear for both of us that turf growth opportunities are still likely to be very limited for both of us, Um, but the temperature averages only indicate the sort of general temperature region that we're likely to experience. Um, But are those temperature regions, Glenn, shifting at all? Is climate change having an influence on us both? Uh, They are having an influence. And I'd like to pick that up in a separate
1: section today, Henry. Otherwise, you're going to tell me off for letting this one drag on too long. Because I think this is one of the biggest shifts we're seeing in our climate. And I really want to look into it because I don't think the December temperature shifts grab the headlines anywhere near as much as they should. And I think they play a big influence on how we manage our turf now and in the future.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, I mean, it does seem that we kind of call every month, you know, really significant. But December really is—we're right in the sort of low point of the year, aren't we? And and so it is important agronomically. And if there's shifts going on that kind of make it even more difficult, then you know, yeah, that would be really good to discuss. Um, will we be dis- Will we? Will we be touching on those kind of mysterious? Uh, stopping hours that we've been discussing later on then.
1: Yeah, I'm going to keep my powder dry on that one for now, Henry.
0: Okay, but we can't talk about December without talking about snow, can we, Glenn? What are the odds of a white Christmas? Because my dad, who is a mine of trivial information...
1: Oh, go on, Henry, I love a my dad says story.
0: Yes, uh, my dad, who in fairness... Can be quite reliable with his uh, quite interesting snippets, uh, but you know I still treat them with a great deal of scepticism, uh, which I think is a kind of throwback um, from my childhood. I think that there's the um, teenager in me that won't um, completely disappear and so when he comes out with this stuff I kind of tend to roll my eyes and uh, and kind of (laughs) dismiss it out of hand but anyway my dad so this is the reason why we're talking about it Um, I know that my dad will certainly say at some point and probably on multiple, multiple occasions over Christmas um, that you're more likely to see snow at Easter than at Christmas, Glen. So let's put this to bed. Is there any truth in that?
1: Well, it sounds like Mr. Bechelet Senior is an incredibly wise man and you should listen to your father, Henry. Um, I've had a little look around on this one and there is a very good piece on this on the Met Office website. And they believe that he is correct. So the Met Office support your father's hypothesis. Uh, Snow is far more likely between January and March than it is at the end of December. The 25th of December is right at the beginning of when we have any chance of seeing snow in the UK. On average, they reckon we'll see snow or sleet somewhere in the country for about 3.9 days in December. Uh, But once we flip over to January, that averages out to 5.3 days. So there is a big turn over this period. Uh, December is less likely than January.
0: Mm, Well, I suppose that that's good news. that the the significant influence on my life has not been feeding me complete nonsense over the year Um, and yeah it's interesting isn't it that because it's not unusual for us to see some snow at the BTME show in Harrogate um, which is just over the hill from me Glenn um, which is always held towards the end of January
1: No that's right Uh, on average we expect to see across the country somewhere in the country 5.6 days in February and once we flip over to March we expect to see 4.2 days in average. So February is the peak, but March is more likely. So the odds are greater in March of snow than in December. Um, We should really think about managing snow as a subject, shouldn't we? And maybe we'll throw that into January's podcast, um, which will be coming out just before Christmas this year. So once again, this format is confusing me
0: yeah i know glenn it, it's uh, i don't even know what day it is normally so to be thinking sort of uh, six weeks ahead um is a challenge um uh, but i think the point is really clear isn't it that uh, rather than snowy scenes on our christmas cards uh, they should all be gray dreary and raining Oh, That's probably closer to the truth, isn't it? But white
1: Christmases were more common in the 18th and 19th century, Henry. Uh, And that's not just due to climate change. Did you know that in 1752, the calendar changed and Christmas Day was effectively brought back 11 days?
0: No, Glenn, I, I leave that kind of thing to my dad.
1: Well, the, the calendar system implemented by Julius Caesar in 46 BC had an inbuilt error in it, Henry, uh, of one day every 128 years. Really subtle difference, but we um, we changed over to the Gregorian calendar in 1752, and rather than having 365.25 days in it, like the Julian calendar did, uh, the new calendar we use now has 365.2425 days in it. So the result of all of that is by the time we got to 17.52, we actually had to adjust the clock to bring things back in line, resulting in wiping a whole 11 days off the calendar and effectively moving Christmas back from early January to the 25th of December.
0: Uh, you, Glenn, you and my dad, I think, would get on really well, but... Um, the teenager in me just still finds this stuff um, quite annoying.
1: I'd love to come round your house on Christmas Day, Henry, and see you sulking in the corner whilst me and your dad <laughs> were chatting. That would amuse me with no end. Mm, um, yeah. Anyway, with that in mind, all of those images that you see on Christmas cards are actually around the 3rd of January in our current calendar, not the 25th of December, which coupled with climate change means... In the 18th century snow was far more likely at christmas than it is now
0: right but i'm not sure um, golf course managers uh, were under quite so much pressure in the 18th century glenn Um, i'm not sure how relevant this is no it's not relevant at all henry but it is christmas and
1: since when is anything supposed to be relevant to anything at christmas so i'm going to give you two last facts to wow people with over your sprouts whether you (laughs) like it or not god
0: Right. OK, Claire. I really am rolling my eyes now. I'm starting to huff out my breath and I'm kind of slouching. But go on, then, if you insist. It is Christmas, I suppose.
1: Well, wow. number one fact, Henry. Turkey were the last nation to adopt this Gregorian calendar. And they didn't adopt it until 1927. So Turkey, their Christmases were well out of sync with ours. And the second fact, which I find fascinating, which is... Um, when this was originally proposed by the British government, in order to bring us into alignment with the rest of Europe, because the rest of Europe changed their calendar first, It was met by protests as people were really suspicious of their actions. And there was a belief that they were having their lives shortened by 11 days, Henry.
0: Yeah, I know how they feel, Glenn. Um, I think, actually, you might be worse than my dad.
1: Mm, Henry, the European unrest is nothing new.
0: Right. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Back to reality. Anyway, sorry about that, everyone. I can only apologise. What about the agronomic odds, Glenn, then? Or you know, actually, the, the actual odds, uh, what are the odds that the bookies are offering on a white Christmas this year?
1: Well, it's a, it's a good time of year, Henry, because we talk about the agronomic odds a lot, but not many people, when you walk into the local bookies, will offer you the odds on the chances of rainfall this month, which I actually know quite a lot about. Um, but as last time I checked, you could get five to one on it snowing in Leeds with Betway. Uh, Paddy Power were offering 13 to 2 on it snowing in London on Christmas Day. So it is an interesting time to look at the agronomic odds yeah. at the bookies.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, but I suppose we we, we, we would conclude uh, from those odds that the chances of it actually happening are, are greater than
1: that. Uh, the bookies know what they're doing. They and I personally wouldn't be putting any money on it. And it's all worked out in a really funny way as well. You need to have snow at the site that you've placed your bet on. It's not just a case of snow falling somewhere in the country. Um, and since 1960... Um, only about 50% of the years we've seen snow at any of those stations.
0: Right, OK. Well, anyway, I thought the weather at Christmas was related to sunspot activity beforehand. You see, Glenn, I really am truly my father's son when it comes down to it. Um, either way, probably not worth a bet. Nah. Um,
1: However, a true white Christmas, Henry, which is where you see snow at 40% at those stations, so all those stations around the country, if you get snow at more than 40 of them at 9am on Christmas Day, then that is when we achieve a true white Christmas. And that has only been achieved four times since 1960. In 1981, in 1995, 2009, and 2010, and 2010 was an extremely unusual month uh, with snow at around 83% of those stations.
0: So I'll, I'll keep my money for next year's Eurovision then, shall I?
1: Probably best,
0: Henry. Anyway, so back to growth, Glenn. Um I'm assuming that um, growth degree days are sitting very low now.
1: Uh, well, yes, you are down an average of 5% of your maximum growing potential, Henry. We still sit at around 13% on average, though, down here. Um, but remember that 2015 period I mentioned earlier?
0: Yeah, that really mild year. Yeah. Well, you know, that was the one that you re- every day you reached 10 degrees, wasn't
1: That's it? That's the one, yeah. Well, in that year, we hit 34% of our maximum growth degree days, Henry, which is more growth than your average October.
0: Ah, well, that really doesn't seem fair at all. So whilst it's not normal for December, um, it is sometimes capable of throwing up some mild temperatures. But it's, yeah, it's certainly more likely to be that than than cold and snowy, isn't it? It's like November, really. We in, in our memories, we might kind of think that winter's here, but it's not. It's kind of it just feels like December generally is an extension of autumn, um, and um, we'll maybe look about look at that a bit more later on. All right. So look, in summary, for me up in Ilkley, got an average rainfall again. It was similar to last month, wasn't it? Of 19, 19 mil, but the evapotranspiration rate is very low. So we need to assume in uh, December we're on into our second month of definitely getting wetter and. Actually, possibly the fourth month, because I think September and October, were, for me, were sort of more likely to be wet than dry. The temperatures are sort of bottoming out or feel like they're starting to bottom out, averaging at sort of two degrees overnight and seven degrees during the day. Growth is pretty much done unless we get... Uh, sort of unusually mild conditions. I suppose agronomically, we're probably just trying to keep some turf coverage now in those kind of stress areas uh, because it's not going to get warm, you know. Uh, Well... You know, we say that the weather's all over the place, isn't it? But we, I suppose we might get up to something like 14 degrees. But it's more likely that we'll get a sort of cold snap as well. But that wouldn't be normal. That would be um, a sort of um, um, an outlier more than anything. Um, December for me is a continuation of November in reality, isn't it? Now, we, do, we have talked about those kind of stopping hours, which are really important um, agronomically. And I know we're going to talk about them later on can you give me a kind of headline figure for you know beneficial uh, climatic conditions um, sort of agronomically that might sort of hold back disease what is a uh, sort of the general trends for those kind of sub two degrees hours
1: okay so we're going to dive into this deeper uh, a little later henry but to give you the headlines on these sub two degree stopping hours which are how many hours in the day do we see below two degrees? On average in December for you, you're seeing 188 sub two degree hours, Henry. But in recent years, that's been as low as 20 sub two degree hours.
0: What? That's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, hold that for, wait for it, Henry.
0: Okay, so um, December for me is all about those drivers for disease, really, um, with some potential for disease stoppers, fingers crossed. But they, they really can't be guaranteed. And it looks like there might be a trend going on. Yeah, they
1: can't be guaranteed at all. Okay, right, so summarise for us on the South Coast, Henry. We average out at 96 millimetres of rain with only 13 millimetres of evapotranspiration. So we also need to assume that in December we'll be getting wetter. Uh, But we're probably only in our second month of going on that downward spiral, although October this year did deliver significant rainfall for us, so we may be ahead of that in this year. Um, Temperatures are averaging out around 3 degrees overnight and 9 degrees in the day, meaning that growth is potentially still with us. Uh, Some years we're delivering really high growth. 2015 gave us 34% of the maximum growth we've ever seen, but normally it's around 13%. The warmest we're likely to get to is around 14 degrees as well, Uh, but cold weather is possible. Now, we average 137 hours a month below 2 degrees, Henry, but we have also seen in recent years Well, below 20 hours below two degrees in December,
0: yeah. I mean, can we call it winter yet, Glenn? I think we have to,
1: Henry. The shortest day of the year is in December,
0: and the odds of it being cold are on the up. And while snow is possible, you don't believe it's worth putting any money on,
1: Mm, not for me, Henry.
0: Okay, so December really is an interesting time climatically, Glenn. So, Glenn, what's going on with expectations in December? Uh, Is it the season of goodwill to all greenkeepers and course managers? Do those golfers like Scrooge see the errors of their ways and become more charitable as we approach the festive period? Or do they just continue to take it all for granted?
1: Uh, We spend a lot of time talking about how high the pressure is from golfers, don't we? But I do feel like December is a time of year when that pressure does back off a little. I think people recognise it's now winter and they do expect a little less than normal in terms of quality. But there is always uh, that unrealistic expectation there in the background. And I think this time of year, it's just on how quickly will the course dry out. Um, It it always used to dry out quicker than this It's the kind of comments you get In the old days it would drain much quicker What have you done to make it slower Uh, They just seem to forget They've been saying that every year since a year dot
0: Yeah golfers are just as bad as green keepers um, And agronomists uh, Forgetting what things were actually like You know in times gone past
1: yeah, I think there's also undue pressure on uh, golf course management teams to get leaves quick, cleared up quickly. Uh, golfers seem to hugely underestimate the amount of labour involved in this operation. They seem to miss the concept that leaves don't all fall at once at exactly the same time. So you can never really be on top of it. But I do genuinely feel like most of them enter into the spirit of things around that festive period, or at least uh, enough of them to put the Scrooges in their place at the bar for a week or so you know that holiday time slot 20th of december through to kind of 4th of january before everyone goes back to work was probably our busiest time for golf um, when you consider the amount of rounds you get um, compared to the amount of daylight hours we had Uh, But maybe not the period of the year where it was the highest priority to deliver super high standards. Um, But an incredibly important period of the year to be protecting the golf course.
0: Yeah, it can be a really difficult time, can't it, to sort of balance everything up? Um, And and we will touch on that a little later on. But more importantly, Glenn, how were the members and did you get many presents from them?
1: (laughs) We A few presents, Henry. I like that that's your priority in this podcast. How many gifts did you get at Christmas, Glenn? Um- John and Jane the elderly couple that were out every morning at 6.30 all summer long they would always deliver us a nice four pack of Fosters for our team of six uh, they knew everybody's life story they knew everything about all of us because they delayed the whole team for at least half an hour every day of the summer but they only ever delivered four beers so I'm not sure which two members of the team they weren't big fans of
0: well probably you Glenn I would say with your, yeah, with your say. Christmas trivia um, now were there Uh, Any Christmas bonuses, uh, gifts from dealers, that kind of thing. You see where I'm going with this?
1: Yeah, I can see where you're going, Henry. No, no no Christmas bonuses for me, I'm afraid. I, I often heard of those mythological golf clubs that dished out oodles of cash in brown paper envelopes at Christmas, but I've never actually met anyone that's received one. Um, very little from dealers too. Used to get a nice box of cheese and crackers from one distributor that was very gratefully received. Generally got eaten at lunchtime by me and Rich, big cheese fans, the pair of us.
0: Yeah, don't start me on cheese, Glenn. It's my only vice these days. Oh,
1: I do love a spoonful of brie, Henry.
0: (laughs) Brie? Dripping
1: off the side.
0: (laughs) Brie? What are you on about, Glenn?
1: Oh, come on, Henry. Get with it. Um, I worked at a few bigger clubs when I was younger, uh, and we'd see quite a lot of stuff coming in there, mainly diaries and calendars, a few mugs, the odd box of chocolates. I remember one year having so many of those random gifts that we just set up a lucky dip draw so we could allocate it amongst our team as fairly as we possibly could. Everyone put their names in the hat. And when that name was pulled out, you could walk up to the gift table and select something. And we all watched with interest to see who'd be brave enough to reach for the dirty calendar. Um dates that story a bit, doesn't it? I haven't seen one of those for a while.
0: No, it, it, yeah, times really have changed, Glenn, haven't they? But, uh, but thinking about it, do you know, maybe we could do a calendar? We could call it crossing the line with Glenn and Henry. Probably best not to think about that, Glenn.
1: No, honestly,
0: don't think about it. No,
1: God, no. It's in my head now, Henry. 12 months, 12 agronomic challenges. A scantily clad Henry pointing at some wet will. I just can't cope with it. No, not, not, not for me.
0: Anyway, Glenn, back to reality once more. There, there must have been... You know, loads of pressure to get the golfers round quickly during those short days. So let's take a bit of time later on, actually, to chat about the um, the agronomic impact of those shorter days. But you must have been under like loads of pressure to get buggies and trolleys out during this period. And I remember from my agronomic kind of days that was a, you know a huge issue at this time. You know they want you to sort of you know um, arbitrate.
1: Yeah, it's never a nice feeling to tell people they couldn't use those things, those trolleys that they seem to rely on. It was often essential. You know we've already identified that the golf course is getting wetter, and if it isn't wet by now, I'm pretty confident it's going to be wet by Christmas Um, and it's only a freak year where you get a really dry period Um, that season of goodwill means absolutely nothing when you have to tell a 60 year old man he has to carry his golf clubs they lose all the Christmas spirit at that point
0: yeah it really is a tricking time all round isn't it Glenn
1: Okay, Henry, looking at the climatic conditions and the pressures at play, it seems to me that December once again is a testing time. So what do you think are the main risks? I'm going to assume now that microdochium patch is going to be at the top of your list.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, Glenn, all the drivers are in place, you know, cool, damp conditions uh, being ideal for the development of the pathogen. And Uh, As we've already discussed, turf growth and general health being at its very lowest ebb. This really is a full on month when it comes to microdochium patch disease control, um, especially with the Christmas break coming up. And so we will need, I'm sorry, everyone, to take another in-depth chat on microdochium patch disease uh, in the second half.
1: Yeah, it's a long time till spring still. And we just can't afford to drop that ball now, can we?
0: And no, we can't, Glenn, and thinking a little bit wider, the risk of anthracnose basal rot developing also remains high at this time, especially in wet conditions. Uh, and so it remains important, you know, to continue to try to manage surface drainage, keep nutrients at the right level, not take any liberties with excessively low cutting heights at this time. But the fungicides we use for microdochium patch disease control uh, are all generally good at preventing anthracnose, and so it shouldn't really jump in it, unless there's um, something serious agronomically going on. You know, like uh, I don't know, poor drainage, soil stagnancy, etc. In general, our microdochium patch disease fungicide strategy is also helping against the development of anthracnose, isn't it, Glenn?
1: Yeah, that's right, Henry. The fungicides that we're using against Microdochium patch at this time of year, such as Instrata Elite and Medallion, all have an effect against anthracnose too. So we're managing that as a kind of secondary problem with our primary uh, Microdochium patch programme.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to hear, actually. You say that the holiday period is kind of really significant in terms of the sort of high levels of wear and tear at this time, you know, when growth is at its minimum and also manning levels might be down to sort of skeleton staffing levels. How did you keep on top of traffic management and hole changing and stuff like that over the Christmas period?
1: Well, between Christmas and New Year, we would run with a couple of staff per day. And their duties would be to just keep things ticking over. They would generally come in for a few hours and do whatever was needed. I think if I look back and in hindsight, I could have prioritized that for them a little bit better, given them a bit more guidance. Um, but I do think the agronomics and the conditioning definitely suffered through that. Kind of ten-day period.
0: Yeah, yeah. The pressure to get as many people out as possible and then keep play moving must have been really difficult. What were your thoughts on the use of trolleys? You know, both motorised and pull, and of course buggies as well, because it is such a complicated issue, where we can't be discriminatory, but. By the same token, we don't. We also don't want to destroy destroy the golf course, do we? You know, any loss of grass cover at this time will be devastating. Mud begets mud, Glenn. That's the long-standing agronomist adage.
1: Yeah, it's a very difficult time, and I'm sure each club will be different depending on the type of course, the levels of play, underlying drainage, the routing, traffic infrastructure level of worm casting. And we spent a lot of time laying out black rubber mats to accommodate as much play as possible um, to try and keep those trolleys and buggies out as long as we could. Um, But there's a demand to play golf 365 days a year and we try to do our best to provide it. But there is no getting away from if I took trolleys out of the game for them the amount of traffic reduced dramatically around that golf course and that was a a win for the golf course but a lose for some of those members so very difficult and needs a fully resourced and prioritized plan of action from the club
0: Yeah, yeah, because when areas do become worn and muddy, you know, the risk of slipping increases, which makes it even more of an issue.
1: Yeah, and a lot of those golfers seem to completely rely on a trolley or a motorised vehicle to keep them going. I guess that's a sign of an ageing membership, Henry. Um, I'm sure a lot of them would enjoy their golf just as much if they just carried a few clubs in a small bag just to reduce that pressure on the golf course and give them a nice, fun walk.
0: Yeah, that's what I do, Glenn. Anyway, we should talk properly about frost policy and possibly what to do under snow next month because they're in this same territory, aren't they? You know, closing the course or restricting play, that kind of thing. Uh, and they're really difficult to navigate. Anyway, moving on. December isn't a time when we'd expect to see leather jackets damage Uh, but it is a time when we can be monitoring for infestations and preparing our next line of defense in terms of damage limitation later on we should say at this point that the emergency authorization that was granted for the use of a for the control of leather jackets ended at the end of November. And so all applications should have been completed by then.
1: Yes, Henry. Still plenty to do this month, though, and it's an important period in our leather jacket control strategy. So let's have a look at that and do a short piece on that later on in the podcast.
0: And also with the recent COP26 summit um, that was staged in Glasgow in, in November, fresh in our minds, I think we're now all hopefully fully aware of the dangers of climate change. And so you're going to have a little look at that, aren't you, with some recent December trends that you think might be really having a sort of significant agronomic impact upon us at this time.
1: Yeah, it's worrying times, Henry. Um, but I think we need to go into them with our eyes open. So, yeah, I'd like to look at some of the recent December trends um, in temperatures just to see how that plays out. And I think at some point we should get together and maybe have a look at what golf courses could do to be more positive in their role, um, looking at climate change and maybe carbon capture in the future. But I don't think I'm going to go into that one today. I'm going to stick to how the climate change has impacted our Decembers in recent years.
0: Yeah, that is, that's really important, Glenn. And we do need to get onto that because I think sort of we're all on the same page, aren't we? We just want to know what, is, what, what to do. You know that's it. So look, there's plenty to talk about in the second half already. So shall we have a, a, a quick breather before jumping back in?
1: Yes, Henry. I'm going to go put the kettle. <laughs>
0: so welcome back to part two of on the horizon with glenn and henry in part one we set the scene for december in terms of those agronomic influences that might be impacting on our turf and then we decided to have a quick break before embarking on more detailed discussions in part two so glenn have you had a good break have you got your cuppa what is it this month?
1: Wow, well, Henry, I've gone for an eggnog this month, Henry. An exciting <laughs> blend of egg yolks, cream. Could have gone for rum or whiskey, but since we're working, I've gone for a non-alcoholic version and just added some milk. Oh, right. So how is it? It's disgusting, Henry. It's extremely <laughs> awful. It joins those group of things that you would only eat and drink at Christmas, right up there with turkey, which can only be eaten with cranberry sauce, which is actually... Jam, let's be honest, and Christmas cake, which uh, whoever invented marzipan just needs shooting. Um, But I have gone for a mince pie, Henry, a Mr Kipling's deep-filled mince pie.
0: mince pies, Glenn. How is it?
1: Um, Exceedingly good, Henry. And uh, get this, it's taste approved by the Good Housekeeping Institute.
0: Well, I'd have thought that they'd be sort of encouraging you to actually make some, Glenn. Well
1: busy people, Henry. We've got podcasts to do, blogs to write. I haven't got time to make mince pies. Not yet, anyway. Not till the Christmas break. Anyway, what about you? What have you gone for? Anything exotic this month, Henry?
0: Well, Glenn, this month I'm drinking Barry's tea, uh, which was brought... <laughs> <It's> not exotic. <laughs> Look, this was brought over to me from Ireland by my good friend, Coleman Ward.
1: So you've roped Coleman into this.
0: You're just getting out of hand now, Henry. You just can't
1: use this podcast as a platform to get free tea bags.
0: I don't see why not, Glenn. Anyway, with this one, we need to tread a little bit carefully because I know there's a strong rivalry between Barry's and Lyons uh, in Ireland.
1: OK, Henry, we got to be careful not to offend anyone here, but I'm going to ask the big question on everyone's mind. What's it like?
0: Well, it's a strong tea, Glenn. Mm, you do like strong tea, though, Henry,
1: so I think that's a good thing.
0: Yes, Glenn. And well, I would say that Look, it's assertive, Glenn. Um, but not in a heavy-handed way. Uh, don't get me wrong there. And it really seems to be able to muster a, a keen sense of like like almost like deja vu in amongst those strong flavors. So so yeah, Glenn, it's honestly, it's a really nice cup of tea.
1: Well, I think I'm gonna to have to tap Coleman up for a couple of bags myself, Henry.
0: I'll bring some down. <laughs>
1: Well, it feels like it's a good month to be talking about climate change, Henry.
0: Yeah, you know, after COP26 being in the headlines at the start of November uh, and... It also being the time of Christmas joy. You know, Glenn, it's got to be the perfect time to talk about our global demise.
1: Mm, Well, there is that, Henry. But I think it's important at this time of year because December is where, in recent years, we've seen the biggest shift in the way that temperatures play out. And possibly, in my opinion, one of the bigger ways that climate change is going to affect golf course managers.
0: Yeah, you've spoken about this before, haven't you, Glenn? You know, the temperature shifts in December being agronomically significant.
1: Look, I have spoken about it before, Henry. I know that. And I'm going to continue to talk about it because I think it is one of the biggest areas to influence how turf managers manage their golf greens. And if I can give people a bit more information to arm them to talk to their membership about it, then I will do. And if I can equip people and manage their expectations a little bit about what is more likely, then I want to do that too. Now, for clarity, all of the data that I'm going to present in this section is from the Met Office website for climate change. And um, and I've got some concerns, Henry. What worries me is the headlines for climate change are always about the kind of big ticket items, the flooding or the high temperatures in the summer or the prolonged high temperatures that we see. You know, and they're really important. It's you know, it's forecast that by 2070, we'll see twice as many 30 millimeter per hour rain events as we saw in the 1990s, and it really does feel like we're well on the route to that already. Um, that UK winter rainfall could increase by 25%. And I don't think if you asked any golf course manager, they would be surprised by that figure at all.
0: No, and that is a huge amount, isn't it? Uh, Look, we know our average temperature has moved
1: one degree since the 1950s. So we're already on that movement. That's all recorded. That's all data that's in the bank. And the projections are showing that we're going to move another one to four and a half degrees, somewhere in that range by 2070. Now, 2070 sounds a long way off, doesn't it? But my optimistic retirement plan is about 2041.
0: Yeah, well, I'm definitely aiming to reach 100 years. Um, Can you imagine how grumpy I'm going to be by then? And so 2070 is within touching distance of that.
1: And if you've got a school leaver with you now, then 2070 is their retirement year. In the time from now to when that new trainee, that school leaver... Um, retires, we could see another four and a half degrees average temperature increase. This is serious stuff within the working life of those young people on your team.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely terrible thoughts really because the consequence of those temperature increases and, you know, so far reaching. And when you think about that, um, you do realise the magnitude of the journey that we're all on here. This is really serious stuff for our kids and theirs. I so hope we haven't really completely messed it up for them, but it's certainly our job now to begin the process of clearing it up.
1: Indeed. And what we're hearing about, Henry, is the average figure. But as we know from doing this podcast, the average figure is just one simple figure. And that tells us what the center of the temperature range we see is. That's kind of centre of any given temperature range that we're seeing is not really a true picture of what actually happens.
0: Yeah, yeah. The extremes are going to be a big, big part of that picture, aren't they? And and the winter months are when you, you think uh, we're going to start seeing some significant impacts of this in the UK and Ireland uh, for our industry sooner rather than later?
1: Well, I think it's the period of the year that we've already seen the biggest but least obvious shift to date. And it's the area that doesn't really grab the headline so that's why I want to talk about it. We do hear about milder winters occasionally but when we do it's all about those averages.
0: Yeah and we know from from our conversations about the weather uh, for each of our locations that the averages you know do hide the true picture um, because You know, the consequence of climate change is extremes rather than just being a sort of directional trend. And as turf managers, we need to understand, you know, these extremes or the sort of uh, details of, of what's going to happen with the weather to be able to properly prepare ourselves.
1: Yeah. Now, when we introduced the concept of those sub two degree stopping hours a couple of months back, Henry, we did that to help us understand the kind of nuances of the weather. And we did that to just help us understand how much cold weather we really get through these months. Now, we can see, we can see extremes of high temperatures up in the teens and low temperatures that deliver frost and achieve, you know, if we get those two extremes, we could achieve an average of seven degrees or we could also have 24 hours where we sat at seven degrees every hour of the day, and that would also deliver an average of seven degrees. But one would give you 24 hours of really high disease pressure, and the other would deliver no disease pressure at all. So what I want to look at now is kind of go around the country a little bit to understand how the milder climate is leading to more conducive weather and more conducive weather conditions for microdochium patch to progress during the month of December.
0: Okay, that's good. Um, But before you go around the country, Could the weather data that you're presenting here just be a short-term blip?
1: Well, well, yes, Henry, and let's really hope it is. But if the journey to 2070 or little Lewis, Jack or Callum's retirement or even Emily, Emma or Madison, yep, they were all the most popular baby names from 2005, if that journey delivers what is predicted – then the agronomic odds are, Henry, that we'll be moving in one direction and that's less sub two degree stopping hours. Or, you know, I worry more about is Christmas littered with microdochium patch or phone calls that fungicides don't just last as long. Uh, They just don't do what they used to. And all that leads to more anxious golf course managers all leading to more intense studying of the weather forecast to try and squeeze in all the IPM strategies that we possibly can to keep this problem under control. Now, we've spoken about Ilkley and Winchester quite a few times, And I felt that we were pretty representative of what we were seeing across the country, Henry.
0: Yeah, and generally you down south see greater extremes, uh, but are also milder than us up north. Yeah, we're milder than you, but compared to the rest of the UK,
1: both of our locations are actually pretty cold in comparison. Um, Now I'm going to use 2010 as an example, Henry, as that's the coldest year that we've had in recent times. Um, I think... 2010 might have been that year earlier. We were talking about that snow, that kind of freak winter year. But, but in 2010, Ilkley saw 505 of those stopping hours. So you had 505 hours under two degrees in, 2000, in December 2010. Uh, us in Winchester, we saw 437 hours in that same year. If we go up to Alan, who we were with recently up at Turnberry, in that same year, he saw 389 stopping hours. Um, And then Galway, over on the west coast of Ireland, in that same year, saw 359 stopping hours. If we go down to the south of Ireland, down to Cork, they saw 345 stopping hours in that same December in 2010.
0: Okay, that's interesting, Glenn. But what about sort of the warmest year, what does that look like in terms of those stopping hours? Okay, if we go across
1: the UK and Ireland, um, the warmest year was 2015, which we spoke about earlier. Ilkley saw 20 of those stopping hours. Winchester saw six stopping hours. Allen up in Turnbury saw 20 stopping hours. Galway on the west coast of Ireland saw nine sub-two degree stopping hours. Cork saw six and Dublin saw zero.
0: Well, that's unbelievable, isn't it? What a massive contrast between those extremes, you know, and obviously completely agronomically hugely significant. And and it looks like we're seeing the same pattern across the country, actually, although the big differences kind of did occur, you know, between a warm year and a cold year. The the league table um, doesn't change much, you know. The, the sort of patterns are, are similar for all of us. Is that right?
1: Yeah, there, it is. But but here's the worrying trend for me, Henry. If we average out those figures and we go in two sections, 2008 to 2012, and then if we compare those averages to 2009 to 2020, then we see a very different picture. Um, 2000 In that 2008 to 2012 period, Ilkley, Average out at 284 stopping hours between 2008, 2012. But when we go 2013 onwards, that figure drops to 128 stopping hours.
0: No way. That's less than half. Yeah,
1: and we see that pattern in other areas too. Winchester, 2008 to 2012. We were averaging 222 stopping hours. But when we move to 2013 onwards, that drops to only 85 stopping hours.
0: Well, that's a third then. Mm. You know, these seem like they look, I'm, I'm in agreement. OK, we could be cherry picking here, but these do seem like really significant agronomic shifts.
1: Well, and that's why I wanted to go around the country. So if we go up to Alan at Turnberry, his average uh, 2008 to 2013 was 165. Again, I think that's got coastal influence on him. Um, but 2013 onwards, that's dropped to 37 stopping hours.
0: Uh, that's a that's a quarter.
1: Yeah. Uh, Galway, west coast of Ireland, 2008 to 2013, they were averaging 133 stopping hours. That's now down to an average of thirty-seven
0: stopping hours. Yeah, well, look honestly, um, you I could go on. Yeah, yeah, it, you know these 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 kind of recent trends. Um, the differences seem huge, um, don't they?
1: Yeah, but it doesn't just mean less frosts, though, Henry. We touched on this a little bit last month. But it means they don't last as long. So when you do get frosts, they're not hanging around. You know, I've been watching recently on Twitter as we've seen a few frosts appear at the beginning of November. And all golf course managers seem to be praying that those frosts lift quickly so they can get out and get on with their work. Actually, from a disease management point of view, we want them to last longer. We want zero degrees at two o'clock in the morning, and we don't want that to lift again till midday. That's what's changing. It's the longevity of this cold weather. We're still going to see those low temperatures. It's just how long they stay there. We're shifting to this warmer weather, and it really hits home. Um, For me, when we were, doing some work with a colleague your, your, your tea dealer over in Ireland. And um, we did some work with him this month. Uh, and we kind of went through all this data for a number of areas over in Ireland. And they've been experiencing these warmer climates for a number of years now. Um, they've always been a little bit milder. They've always had a bit more pressure. And I think we've now got to look to them to see how they've dealt with this challenge, because what they've got is what we're going to
0: get. Yeah. So why do you think that we're seeing this trend, Glenn?
1: Look, climate change is real, and we've seen this increase in average temperatures, and we suspect that trend will continue. If you've got a 24-hour period and the average temperature is 8 degrees, then a large percentage of the day is going to be right around 8 degrees. There'll probably be some at 2 or 3 degrees and some at 12 degrees, but not many. If that average temperature shifts to 9 degrees, then you'll see less of those two or three degree hours, which means we'll see more in the optimum range for this disease. Um, I really hope that these last eight years have been a blip, Henry, but I suspect you know, from here on in, the colder years will be the unusual ones and the warmer years will be the normal ones.
0: Yeah, and I, I do agree with your point, actually, that it's kind of well worth looking towards those turf managers in those kind of milder areas like Ireland, who've been dealing with this for a number of years now, uh, you know, higher, p- more prolonged periods of uh, disease pressure to, to, to really take their learnings and to sort of um, have a look at their strategies.
1: Yeah, it's likely the challenges that Galway have faced for a number of years will be on a lot of us very soon.
0: Yeah, Decembers uh, December's now are difficult enough, aren't they? And it looks like they're, they're not going to get any easier. Now, Glenn, Christmas is soon upon us. And uh, whilst I love the festive season... Not true, by the way. Um, The bit I do really enjoy is the break from work and spending some quality time with the family. And I've been very fortunate, I should say, uh, throughout my career to have had the opportunity to take some time off during the uh, Christmas period and forget about work, recharge the batteries, enjoy a mince pie, Glen. And get into a good book, Dickens, obviously, and also chip away at the traditional Christmas jigsaw. But I do say this with caution, Glenn, because I know that this isn't an opportunity that many of our audience um, get too often. How did Christmas work out for you, Glenn, when you were a greenkeeper stroke course manager?
1: Yeah, well, things have changed for me as well now, Henry. As you say, I get the opportunity to um, get annoyed by the family far more than I used to. Um, But when I was a golf course manager, um, the clubs I worked at were always pretty amenable, Henry. They were always pretty good. And they were always happy when I was managing things to let me sort out whatever I wanted in a way that I saw fit. And there was generally a bit of disbelief, particularly in the members clubs, uh, my desire as a golf course manager to have a decent sized team in over that Christmas stretch. Um, there weren't too many expectations from the club's perspective, Henry, which which was nice. The pressure
0: wasn't there. Ah, and, and so do you think that that's normal practice? From my experience,
1: golfers aren't the ogres that we sometimes make them out to be. Uh, they really want to see the team have a break too. They know they've worked really hard for them. They just struggle to communicate and acknowledge that they're nice people most of the time. It's just not a very British thing to do, is it? But at Christmas... They all seem to have read Christmas Carol or seen the movie and they recognise the Scrooge character in themselves and they make a concerted effort to let all their Bob Cratchits spend a few hours with their tiny Tims.
0: You don't strike me
1: as a Dickens fan, Glenn. No, I'm not a big Dickens fan, but I do like the Muppets and uh, Muppets Christmas Carol is on my Christmas viewing list every year although my kids are now a little bit older and I do find myself watching it alone these days with a slice of Christmas pudding and a small glass of brandy Um, yeah anyway um, so the members clubs were pretty good like that the proprietary clubs I worked at uh, they seemed to be a bit more business minded but in general it was the week where people recognised that family should be first
0: yeah that's right Um. But as much as you want to, Glenn, uh, you, you can't just let everyone have the week off, can you?
1: No, there, there may be the ability to do it from the club's perspective, but it's not. You know, you do want to get your people away. You do want to get your team back home with their family. It's important for greenkeepers to get that same break that you and I now are fortunate enough to do, Henry.
0: Yeah, OK. So, but when you were off, and be honest here, Glenn, did you uh, did you ever manage to like uh, properly switch off and relax? No, not really, Henry. The pressure
1: was doubled. The club's expectations might not have been high for me to manage conditions through that week. Um, from their point of view, if animal scrapes in bunkers were repaired, then that was good enough. But I knew if we were busy with golf that... I wanted to deliver a really high-quality golf course for those golfers. And I was acutely aware that we were in a real danger period with the weather through that December period. And if there was anything that went wrong, if we saw a downturn in quality through that period, recovery was slow. And we've discussed that so many times, how long it takes to recover.
0: So how did you manage then? I think I know you well enough, Glenn, to know that you would have probably been stressing out about this. Yeah,
1: I was torn, Henry. My wife was insisting I had a break. You know, I wanted to give my team a break as well. I wanted to give them an opportunity to catch up with their friends and family and relax. I wanted to deliver a great golf course to my membership because I felt that was my role and that's what I was paid to do. I had the club's support to back off all of that a little bit if I wanted to, but I also recognised that there were these essential jobs to be done, these essential agronomic jobs jobs that just needed to happen.
0: Yeah, so so over the Christmas period those, um, n- how many is it, nine days from Christmas to New Year's Day how many staff did you have in to cover the work that that needed to get done.
1: We'd always go in as a team on Christmas Eve to try and make sure everyone would come in because it was a really nice day. You'd kind of get set up in the morning. You'd have a bit of cake and a pint in the clubhouse maybe. It really did have a special feeling about that one and try and get everyone away from work early. Um, It's one of the things that I really miss about greenkeeping Christmas Eve actually. I wasn't sure that I'd ever say that. Um, but after that, once we have got through Christmas Eve, I try and get two people in every day to cover those essential tasks, such as cutting greens or raking bunkers or blowing leaves, changing holes, whatever it was that needed doing.
0: Yeah, but two people can't do that,
1: Glen. No, they can't. So there's going to be compromises in there, isn't there?
0: Yes, and we've already discussed that you've probably got a full golf course to contend with. Um, so it's not like you could... Like cut the greens and then double back to change the hold? No, you
1: couldn't. And we'd have no one in Christmas Day either. I'd always make sure of that. I wasn't that Scrooge-like
0: that I'd force them in on Christmas Day. Well, that is something. Pleased to hear that, Glenn. But what about Boxing Day? You know, Did you bring anyone in then? Or New Year's Day? Um, I tried not to. But if I
1: was at home for Christmas... I would always cover those. I couldn't leave it. I wasn't prepared to leave the golf course alone for two days without any staff. And I didn't want to bring people in on those days. So I'd find a way of doing it myself.
0: Right. Okay. On your own. So what did the family think of that? Yeah, they didn't get it, Henry. They didn't understand at all. Um, They
1: knew the club didn't particularly want me there. And I think Mrs Kirby just thought I was some kind of control freak that couldn't leave the course alone. Um, Her brother, he's a greenkeeper too, so she'd be complaining about the pair of us. Um, There was a lot of pressure from the family for me to go in super early if I was going to do it so I could be back before the kid's up and spend some time playing with them and their new Christmas toys. Um, But I'd even get that wrong because I'd go in super early. I'd come home and then fall asleep whilst I was still trying to digest those 15,000 calories I'd consumed the day before.
0: So you knew it couldn't stop. And I suppose you prioritized the work that needed doing and then stretched yourself way too thinly between the family, um, the golf course and, you know, Giving your team a break.
1: Yeah, and I, I tried to do all three and probably failed all three of them in some way, shape or form. But at least I felt that no one could atta- could say that I wasn't trying because I was giving it my everything. But like you say, just stretched myself too thin, I think.
0: And I think that's probably quite common. You know, you wouldn't be alone in that.
1: No, I'd put money on the majority of head greenkeepers around the country really kind of recognising this conversation and doing something very similar. And, you know, and I had a reasonably sized team. So if we go out to some of those smaller teams out there, the pressure has just increased on them because they've got less people to pull on.
0: Yeah. So you're getting back to the agronomics, I suppose. Do you think you sort of realize just how dangerous those nine days were you know, from an agronomic perspective, you know, we've discussed that the weather is all in favour of um, especially microdochium patch disease. But that's not the only sort of agronomic issue going on. Did you think it was, you know, a real sort of crux time?
1: I don't think I did. You know, I knew we had short days, so longer periods of leaf moisture. I knew we had huge amounts of golfing traffic. Um I probably overestimated how cold it was going to be. Uh, I knew we had reduced labor input. Um, But now, now I'm in this role and I can get this really decent kind of overview of the industry and see the common themes. I can see what goes wrong and I can see how difficult a time of year it is. but I don't think I'd have full handle on that as a golf course manager. Um, and, And the big thing here is when you back off and you see this downturn, It's just so long till you see recovery.
0: Yeah, it is a long time until May, Glenn, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and now I look at it from this side of the fence, it becomes really clear, though. Those periods are tough. People are prioritising differently at that time of year. You know, People will skip dewing off if they can. They'll skip that bit of moisture control in order to make sure they get back to their loved ones a little sooner. They'll prioritise bunkers over dewing off just to kind of satisfy those golfers. If there's a frost, rather than waiting to dew off once that frost has lifted, they'll just let it run its course and they'll disappear off home for another go at the box of chocolates. Um, It's a really difficult time to get people on the right prioritising wavelength for the golf course.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's the one time of year that you won't hear a complaint about it either. You know, so, you know, the golfers are happy about that as well.
1: Yeah, indeed. But but there's a downside. And what I see now is if we have those mild Christmas periods, um, which we've already seen are getting more and more likely year on year, it's almost inevitable that in the new year I'm going to get these calls from dissatisfied customers about disease in their greens that has exponentially kicked off over that Christmas period.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, you know, serious consequences, um, you know, associated with, you know, lifting off a little bit in terms of sort of, you know, the sort of intensity of maintenance. Um, Okay, so how would you get around it then if you had your time again?
1: It's about prioritising, Henry. It's all about prioritising. And number one priority has got to be getting your staff away to spend time with their family. That is critical. Turf is Great golf is important, but family is number one. But when you've got those staff in, when you've got your team in, then the priority has to be removing leaf moisture and not at four o'clock in the morning so we can get home for a fry up with Uncle Gareth. It's about doing it somewhere close to that golf, as close as we can sensibly to golf. To dry that leaf out, do whatever it takes a good dew brush, mowing, rolling, it's critical we think about dew suppression and that management. We should really be thinking about how we can manage leaf moisture. And I think dew suppression technology through this period of the year where turf growth has slowed can really help us fill those gaps because we've got gaps in labour Um, And we've got a number of days where we don't have enough of the team to do the essential works that we really think needs to happen. So I think we've got to lean on those technologies more.
0: Yeah, we do need to use a a sort of due dispersant technologies to help give everyone a bit of peace of mind through this period. And fungicides actually are, are, are probably the biggest part of that, aren't they?
1: Indeed, those technologies are there to allow us to back away a little. You know, I'd be leaning on due suppression products heavily um but fungicides are there too there's a lot we can do to take that pressure off but we can continue with that one a little bit later
0: yes Um, you know the technologies are there to sort of um, take the pressure off and you know give the team a break and hopefully enjoy the Christmas period by not worrying about things too much you know it is important to spend some time with the family probably quite important to get out every now and again as well but you know Christmas couldn't fall at a worse time agronomically could it no
1: long periods of leaf moisture we're close to those optimum disease temperatures increasing odds of the temperature being in favor of that disease development rather than the stopping hours or that disease stopping temperatures that we like to see on our, what we see on our Christmas cards and we've got reduced labor to cover those agronomic priorities and it's the one time of year where the golfers actually give you permission to take your foot off the pedal
0: yeah it's the perfect storm isn't it Glenn anything else we can do
1: yeah maybe we could request that that Julian calendar is reinstated as Christmas is moved back to mid-January Henry
0: that is a good idea I will get my dad onto it Glenn
1: So, Henry, what about microdochium patch? Um, I'm sure we've got some things to discuss about that here in December.
0: Yeah, well, as we have already said, the climatic drivers dominate at this time, and it seems that they are likely to all be in favour of the development of microdochium patch disease with very few stoppers um, helping out unless we get a significant blast of cold weather from the north or the east. And... This is the time when, as we've already discussed, we're taking our foot off the pedal for the Christmas break. And so December is the time when the risk of microdochium patch disease is at its peak. The management pressure will have hopefully eased back at this time, but play is still proceeding in earnest. So there's very... Um, sort of few let-ups in our favour in December.
1: Yeah, December can be a really busy time for golf, can't it? Particularly this holiday period where everyone wants to get out, walk off a few calories and get a bit of fresh air in their lungs.
0: Yeah, that'd be nice. Should say, actually, at this point, if we are still pushing the greens at this time with, you know... I suppose cutting height significantly below four millimeters, which we know does happen. then the disease pressure will be heightened even further and that you would need to, you know, significantly compensate for that. Um, So don't be surprised if there's a price to pay for pushing hard at this time of year. Anyway, in terms of our general management strategy through the first half of the month, you know, we just need to continue to take our fully integrated approach with our background supporting strategies of ongoing nutrition, leaf moisture management, as you were saying, um, and the use of those turf hardeners. All needing to be in place to put the brakes on any uh, emerging attack and hopefully slow them down by creating a less conducive environment as much as we can. And we need all that those kind of um sort of background strategies to work hand in hand with our fungicides, don't we?
1: Indeed, Henry, we need all of these things at play at this time of year.
0: Yeah, you know, the stakes are so high and the pressure so high, I should say. So in terms of nutrition, we need to make sure that we don't let the turf weaken during this time. And this means making sure that there is enough available uh, nutrition should, you know, any of those potential growth opportunities present themselves. It might be more relevant for you than me, but actually, you know, we're just going to have to see what happens. But if that is the case, if there are growth opportunities, I think we we both need to be in the region of needing uh, one to two kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week during this time depending on conditions being suitable and we will most likely be delivering that at this time through conventional means with sulfate of ammonia being the main source of nitrogen for both of us i would think so this might mean an application of greenmaster pro light invigorator 408 or invigorator plus 4014 at a rate of 25 grams per meter squared to take the greens through the following five to six weeks. Glenn, did you stick a fertilizer on in December? Yes, I did, Henry.
1: I was a kind of little and often man. Whenever temperatures lifted, I'd get a soluble nitrogen out through my sprayer to pick them up. But I suspect, knowing what I know now, I'd probably steer more towards a granular just to take the pressure off those spray windows, which can be quite limited in December, and we're relying on them for all sorts of other things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the granular formulations I just mentioned uh, also contain sulphate of iron, and so should help harden the sward against microdochium patch disease also. If we move on to leaf moisture management, as we've already mentioned, we, we, we need to stay vigilant with our dew removal and surface drying strategies with, as you said, mowing, rolling... Swishing, brushing, blowing, etc., all need to be considered depending on conditions and deployed whenever needed. You know, at any time during the working day, actually, and, and possibly even in conjunction with each other, especially for like those sheltered greens to dry the leaf surface off. And also, as we know, dew dispersants such as juicema are available to provide longer lasting periods of dew stroke droplet dispersal but we do need to apply them to a dry surface to stick the surfactants to the leaf and so we will need to be alive to opportunities to get them on and possibly work to dry off the surfaces prior to application but if we do get our due dispersant on properly at this time when there aren't any great levels of growth or clipping removal then we should get decent longevity. I'd certainly be planning to get them
1: on prior to the Christmas
0: break, and I'd
1: possibly have one ready to go through that Christmas break with the sprayer all set up, just in case the weather breaks in your favour.
0: Yeah, the Christmas break. I mean, it is a a big thing, isn't it? And, you know, it's certainly a greenkeeping truism that we can all expect a disease attack over Christmas. But this is, and we laugh about it, but it's usually framed as being, um, you know, that it's some kind of. A curse that the disease knows that the green keepers are off and so it chooses to strike them out of sheer vindictiveness yeah it really did feel that way sometimes
1: and and of course you come the new year the, the good spirit is all gone and the golfer's goodwill has disappeared so they don't care about the excuses in the new year that only lasted a few days over the Christmas period.
0: But it's not like we kind of think is that we laugh about, you know, it's just simple, isn't it? It's a, you know, that period of letting up over the Christmas period, you know, the sort of intensity of agronomic management sort of easing back as everyone tries to take a break, you know, coinciding with that period of high disease pressure is simply bound to result in the disease blooming. It's a reaction to the green surfaces being left wetter for longer, isn't it? And I tell you what, it just goes to show how close to the edge we are at times, that even with a slight let-up that inevitably occurs over Christmas can result in serious and damaging attacks. And, And these attacks can leave scarring that, you know, we always say it might last for the next four to five months.
1: Yeah, I think it shows the, the value of the work we're doing on a day-to-day basis and why we need the level of staff we've got. But do you think there's any chance here that you or even I are doing a bit of fear-mongering, Henry, and trying to scare people a little? Well, uh, well what do you think? I don't think we're trying to scare anyone. I think mean, we're just trying to make people aware of what's possible. Um, you know. Mm. And, and the agronomic odds are showing us that these things, situations are going to be more likely as we go forward. and. You know and I just I really want people to go into the this month and approach the end of this month really with their eyes open being super aware yeah. of what can happen so they can prepare for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're not deliberately fear-mongering, but, you know, it can't do any harm, can it, to sort of get everyone properly sharpened up? Because, you know, we, we both genuinely believe that this is, this is a you know, a crucial month when it comes to and patch disease management. You know, anyway, so look, we have to prepare for the Christmas break. And then during that break, as we've already discussed, focus or prioritise the team properly. When they are working during that sort of christmas holiday period so glenn when on the run up to christmas um, should i be applying my preventative fungicide
1: okay so we've identified it's getting mild or we've got the potential for it to be mild Uh, my kind of Long standing greenkeeping strategy with disease was to keep it clean till Santa's been. And what we want to be looking at is thinking about the longevity of our fungicides now. Now is critical. Now we talk a lot about using GDD days as a potential method to measure how long they last. Had a look at that and an average. December for you, Henry, up there in Yorkshire, you're seeing around 32 to to 35 days of control. So that's really positive. For us down on the south coast, we're seeing between about 24 and 28 days. Now, this is based on an average year. Now, we've seen from 2015 and 2010 comparisons that we get some real extremes. So There's some variables there, but that gives you a bit of a guideline. Now, in general, I'm happy to say that an application around the middle to the end of the month to a clean surface with no disease pressure should get you through to the new year, as long as that turf isn't being put under too much additional pressure. Although for your own safety and for me to feel comfortable, I always like to push it as close as I can towards Christmas Eve. It just makes me feel a bit more comfortable with it. If we go mild and that period of longevity shortens, we're just in a bit of a safer place. In fact, whenever I'm putting programs together, I start with a fungicide application in that week before Christmas and then work backwards. Because for me, this is the most important time to just give ourselves a break.
0: Uh, OK, so what should we be using at this time, Glenn? And what application criteria should we be taking into account? Uh, generally, the conditions
1: we might expect would point us towards having a medallion application of fungicide on the shelf. It's contact acting, it takes out spores, it works well at low temperatures, and it always performs well in trials as well as in the field. It works particularly well when applied preventatively to a clean surface. So Medallion on the face of it is the ideal choice. Now, that's assuming we're in control and we haven't got any disease pressure or visible signs of active disease and the weather is playing ball and we know things don't always play out that way. So if we've still got some active disease about then maybe I would steer towards Instrata Elite as that will get into the plant and deal with that active disease inside the plant. If it's really mild, and we've already noted that the odds of this are increasing year on year, you shouldn't discount using that Instrata Elite product and keep your medallion for later on. Now, But this will vary around the country. We've noticed looking at the figures that we've got cooler areas of the country and we've got warmer areas of the country, and season by season this can change. And there is a very high chance through this period of the year when I'm talking to people, I'll be recommending different strategies at different locations, depending on what the weather's doing and where they are in the country. So I still wouldn't discount FR321 yet. If we have another 2015 where we saw those really mild temperatures, that would absolutely be my go-to product now when applying ideally what we want to be doing is applying these to a very dry surface so maybe a bit of surface preparation wouldn't go amiss here too really important with these um,
0: applications
1: of any product at this time of year.
0: Yeah, so what are we talking? Mowing, rolling, that kind of thing, Glen? Yeah, it's not absolutely essential because products are formulated for use at
1: this time of year. But if it'd be me out there, I'd be looking to get everything optimized with that Christmas break coming up, with all the challenges we've discussed. It's important to get the very best out of these products and the other thing i'd consider as well is adding some rider in for that immediate uplift in color and turf quality that we always see um, so if we get improved turf quality and help put a smile on those christmas golfers faces i think that is well worth considering
0: so once we have the fungicide properly in place we can then i suppose think about supporting it with due dispersant if conditions allow on the very run up to christmas or between christmas and new year but we do need to separate you know, due dispersants and fungicides as we discussed last month. So fungicide application takes priority. But if ground conditions aren't suitable, uh, we may not get a chance to apply the due dispersants. They really do need to apply be applied to a dry leaf. So that makes our physical leaf moisture management strategies over Christmas really important because leaf moisture, as we keep saying, is such a driver for microdokin patch disease activity.
1: Yes, Henry, and knowing what I know now, I think I would brief my team a bit differently over the Christmas period. If I was a course manager again, I think my primary focus would be leaf moisture management and I would be less bothered about the other areas. Certainly be trying to encourage the team to make sure those surfaces were dry before they shoot off home to devour more Christmas leftovers. I know it might be a bit of a pain for them, and, but I'd be putting dew removal at the very top of the list. Is there anything else you think we need to think about with regards to microdochium patch disease in December, Henry? It seems to be, once again, a crucial month, and I'm hoping we're going to turn the corner a bit in January.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is crucial, Glenn, and, you know, fingers crossed, but, well, we'll discuss that next month. Uh, but, you know, all the drivers are in place now, and spring is, is still such a long way away. You know, I think in December the main thing is, is to make and take your chances when they come along and if possible, get those timings right, which is not always easy, I understand, but it is always important the impact of something as simple as the, the sort of application of sulfate of iron for instance can be greatly influenced by when it is applied
1: yeah is this your 1000 times wrong story
0: henry yeah it is glad and i don't mind admitting i think i've heard either. your
1: 1000 1, times wrong story 1000 times henry but there must yeah. be someone out there who hasn't heard it go on far away
0: no, well yeah okay all right well should we say okay the one last time that I would tell this story. Um, But I don't mind admitting being wrong, Glenn, because, you know, it's how you learn, you know, eventually and get better at what we do. So this story, sit back and relax, Glenn. This story all hinges around a trial that Andy, or should I say uh, my colleague, Dr. Andy Owen, set up at the SDRI in 2015 looking at the impact of due dispersants and also things like Iron treatments um, and the impact that they had on the speed of development of microdochium patch disease. Now, I've already talked about the dew dispersant results, but the iron results were equally interesting, Glenn. Yeah,
1: I've seen them, Henry, and they are interesting.
0: Have you seen have you have you seen these results? Glenn? I have
1: just a couple of times, Henry.
0: But go on, right? Good. Someone <laughs> hasn't. All right. And he set up a part of the trial to look at iron treatments. And in, the ca- in, in this case, Green Master liquid effect iron, which contains around 6% iron, mainly in sulfate form. And these were applied, uh, these sort of applications of the iron in this trial was applied at a rate of 30 litres per hectare in 400 litres per hectare of water. The treatments were either applied strictly at 28 day intervals as one approach, or as another approach being applied at the first signs of disease activity. And I should say at this point that the monthly application schedule of sulphate of iron had been recommended for years as handed down by generation of agronomists to generation to help, and I quote, harden the sword against disease activity. And I was indeed one of those recipient agronomists. And I reckon, when I kind of look back, that during my time as an STRI agronomist, I made that monthly recommendation over 1,000 times in my reports. Uh, The benefit of copy and paste, Henry very much so glenn you know in that section of the recommendations it was a given you know so anyway back to the trial the results showed that the monthly application of sulfate of iron in liquid form that was applied applied to help harden the sward against disease activity had no impact on slowing the rate of development of microdochium patch disease. I'm so sorry, everyone. Both the control, untreated control plots and the monthly treated iron plots were nearly identical in terms of their the level of disease and and both reached over 30 percent area affected by microdochium patch disease by mid-november they both suffered a massive disease attack now the iron treated plots will have shown a significant uh, Colour up response after treatment, uh, and which no doubt made us all feel better that we'd done a good thing, but it didn't reduce the level of disease activity.
1: All of those reports, Henry.
0: All of those reports. I know, reports. Glenn. I'd like you to sign <laughs> one of
1: them for me one day.
0: Oh, God. And I know, look 1,000 times wrong, Glenn. I don't mind admitting it. And, you know, I do myself colour up when I tell this story but I didn't know any better I was just doing my best I was following convention it just goes to show that we always need to base our advice on research because those plots that were treated with the liquid iron same rate and dilution but this time on a single occasion at the first sign of disease activity resulted in a significant Slowing of the rate of development of the disease with those treated plots averaging over 15% affected area, uh, per, uh, area affected by microdochium patch disease rather than the 30% of the um, untreated or the monthly treated plots. Now, Obviously, this is not fungicide levels of control, but it does show that it is really important to apply a product at the right time if you want to optimize its impact. In the case of something as simple as iron sulfate, this is really important because we don't want to overuse it, do we? The overuse of iron sulfate can adversely affect turf quality. It can lead to uh, and your metagrass poet and your dominated swords thinning out. And so we need to save it for occasional use at times when microdochium patch disease might be becoming active. That's right.
1: Very good, Henry. And there's no shame in that story, mate, because the outcome is progress, and that's what we're all looking
0: for. Yes. Well, thanks for the consolation there, Claire. We all make mistakes. I I should say, actually, as a footnote, this trial also contained some um, phosphonite treatments or a kind of phosphite-type product that were applied in the same way as the iron, either on a four-weekly basis or at the first sign of disease activity. And... Neither of them showed any benefit in terms of impacting on the level of microdochium patch disease activity. They all got 30% disease. It was only a single trial and we shouldn't draw too many conclusions from it, but I just thought I'd mention it. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that work shows that greenkeeping is an art as well as a science because we, we really need to ride those turf conditions and try and take those chances to get applications on at the right time which is difficult because lots of places have really limited spray
0: windows. Absolutely, Glenn. However hard we try, it is simply not possible to get everything right all of the time. And I suppose, you know, that's the final point, isn't it? That December is a difficult month in that way as well, which means that we sort of do have to prepare fully. We do have to look ahead onto the horizon and just get ready for those opportunities.
1: That's right. I agree completely. Christmas is a difficult time that needs to be managed beforehand and during. So we don't have to worry too much about what we might be looking at in the new year. Just get those preventative measures in place, brief the guys properly, keep an eye on the situation and hopefully things will turn out fine. You know, as we digest that turkey, We'll be starting the new year as we mean to go on.
0: Simple as that, Glenn. All right, Glenn, let's talk about leather jackets. We're into December now. What do we have to think about this month when trying to manage this ruthless pest?
1: Indeed, we covered quite a lot in August, September, October and November. We've spoken about good communication with the club to try and understand the challenges ahead. We've spoken about when we expected to see those crane fly beginning to fly. We spoke about training the team to look out for flying crane flies, which this year seemed to kick off around the third week of August. Around the second or third week of September, and as we record this in kind of early to mid November, it's still dribbling on in the south. Um, yeah, it's going on still, Henry.
0: Wow. You, it, that is amazing, isn't it? The, the pest tracker thing is really good, isn't it? And I think we should continue to encourage people to use it because we're getting a real handle on, you know, those periods of activity. You know, because that's sneaking up to about, what is it, nine weeks of flight stroke egg laying?
1: Yes. Someone even sent me a picture of a crane fly frozen to a T-marker last week, Henry. Uh, people are getting kicks are sending me dodgy crane fly images these days. They seem to find it hilarious.
0: Do you think that's a viable method of control?
1: Uh, Yeah unfortunately climate change is seeing an end to the death of crane fly through being frozen to T-markers so not something we can rely on for the future I think. Look, last month we spoke about applications of Aceloprin, so a critical time last month, which should have been targeted for around mid to late October, possibly into early November.
0: Yes, and and all applications, we reiterate, should have been made by the end of November this year.
1: That's right, Uh, very important that's done in order to stay within the rules of the emergency authorisation. Look, we've also talked about aeration strategies, um, just backing off around that Aceloprin application to ensure we have that really strong intact layer of the product. And now we're into monitoring, Henry. We're into a period where we can start counting. We want to really understand what the challenge is going to look like in the upcoming months so we can begin to plan for it.
0: Yeah, so now we've moved on to uh, moved on from monitoring for crane flies on the wing to sort of looking now it, it, uh, to see what level of infestation of, of the grubs in the soil that we've got. So, look, you've spoken a lot about monitoring in previous episodes, Glenn and you're a big advocate, I would say, of the the sort of small-scale sheeting approach, aren't you? Do you want to just talk us through that again?
1: Yeah, so the way I like to see golf course managers monitoring how much activity they've got going on in their putting surfaces is to take a one square meter sheet you know i get a few made up you can just search something like custom tarps online and you can get these one square meter sheets with eyelets put in the corners really cheap sent to you really useful then you want to go get some tent pegs uh, go buy them from a shop or just grab them out of your garage everyone seems to have got Loads of tent pegs after the influx of camping holidays this year. So grab some of those. When you're thinking about that sheet, you want to make sure it's black, it's dark, it's going to hold moisture, and then you peg those sheets down around the golf course. Do it before you go the day before and then have a little count up underneath the following morning.
0: So what areas would you do? Would you just do the greens?
1: No, I'd be doing everything, Henry. I'd really make a habit of it. Every day, go and put one out, whether it's greens, tees, fairways, get three or four of them made up. Put them out at the end of the day, pick them up, count record it and do that the next day and just keep doing it. I mean, We really, really need to focus on this now. Let's get a firm handle on what's going on. Where are they? How many are we seeing? What surfaces are worse? How much control did we get from our Acelepren applications? Is the pressure high right outside those treated areas? Does it have the potential to move into the treated areas even if we've got great control there? We've got to use this period to build up a picture of exactly what is going on.
0: Okay, so what can we expect to see under those sheets, Glenn?
1: Well, the leather jackets will be small in December, Henry, so it's going to take a little bit of time to get your eye in and actually count them. Um, We could potentially start measuring them too, just to kind of gauge that development process. It does take a bit of time to count them properly in December because they're not immediately obvious. They'll be easier to count on greens where we're cutting at low cutting heights. And they'll be more tricky in fairways where things are a bit longer, where the turf is longer. And maybe not even possible yet to find them in your semi-rough because they'll be buried at the bottom of the sward. But they'll be small. Yeah, how small? it's difficult to say because I think it depends on what development chances you've had around the country. But the pictures I'm seeing at the moment or that people are sending me now, I'd say they're anything between kind of four to 10 millimetres at this time of year. But remember, the first one's hatched around the end of August. So they'll be fairly big by now. And some of them only hatched last week. So they'll be really tiny and you've got no chance of seeing them
0: okay so what should we be thinking about in terms of sort of thresholds Glenn any idea of what is a uh, a safe number when we might be uh, or when we might be stepping into a danger territory when they when they start feeding in earnest or you know Um, what level will birds start taking a shine to them?
1: That's going to be different for each site, and it's so difficult to get a handle on this. But the more information we get, the more we'll understand it. But what I would say is if you're finding 100 per square metre, then you're in trouble no matter what turf you are managing. But on some sites, 1 to 15 per square metre would be absolutely fine because you've got enough turf growth to deal with that but on another site 1 to 15 could be an absolute disaster you know in situations where turf grows much slower because it's cooler due to climatic conditions or you're dealing with slower growing finer grasses or if you're in really densely shaded areas that are very challenged or if you like to run with a really low fertility program you know, all of those kind of situations are going to have a much lower tolerance to the number of leather jackets they can cope with than healthy turf.
0: Will. So obviously at this time, it's really important to build that picture so we can understand if if we need to maybe push the turf a little bit more with a feed in the sprig or if we can, um, by the same token, relax and settle into a sort of default agronomic program with no special measures on the horizon.
1: That's right. And I'd, I'd really use this method to guide my aeration program too. If I was seeing none under those sheets, I'd be far more confident to be punching some holes in those greens. Um, but if I was seeing lots of them underneath those sheets, then I'd probably decide to back off my aeration program on those putting surfaces. You know, if I was seeing none in my greens, but high numbers around the outside of my greens, then I'd be really thinking about my strategy then. You know, maybe I could switch to slitting only in greens as a possible strategy. You know, these things will wander on from outside, and when they do, we want to ensure they've got a tough time burying down through that aceloprin layer that we have put there. They've got to really kind of force their way through it. We don't want to give them an easy ride down through a big three-quarter inch verti drain hole and let them settle in for the winter.
0: No, absolutely not. We don't want the Leather Jacket Hotel, do we? No. Are there any other methods that we might consider in terms of monitoring or measuring the level of that infestation that we might have lurking? Under our surfaces, Glenn. There's a
1: few other methods out there that people use, and it's well worth understanding the kind of pros and cons for all of them. Now, pulling plugs is one. I see a lot of people say this is the only way we can reliably work out what's going on. And to do that, you would go around and randomly pull some hole cutter plugs out of your surfaces, and then you pull them apart and start disintegrating them, looking for those little pests in there. You know, It's a good method, as you can see whereabouts they are in the soil profile. Um, it's not a method that's affected by temperature. So from that point of view, you won't see this fluctuation like you would with sheeting. But I'm not a big fan of it because I think it's a bit potluck as to whether you find that patch of leather jackets, particularly in low population environments. I think smaller leather jackets are really easy to miss with this method because they're very similar colours to the soil that you're disintegrating and pulling apart. Um, So even if they're in that soil plug, the chances of seeing them when they're smaller is very slim or it's certainly reduced. Uh, But the biggest downside for me is how disruptive this process is. You know, I want people to be doing loads of monitoring. I'd love it if people were in a habit of applying or putting five or six of these sheets out every night and really building a picture of what's going on. But if you were relying on pulling plugs out, that would be so time consuming and so disruptive, even if it was the most effective way, I just think it wouldn't happen.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Glenn.
1: Another method that is used, which is the most reliable method for a population count, is to pull plugs out and then put them over the top of a pot of water. You kind of turn them upside down, put them over the pot of water, put them in the drying room, and let them dry out. And then what happens is that leather jacket thinks that it's drying out and they try and go deeper into the soil profile, so they're kind of chasing downwards through gravity. And then they kind of pop out of the the plug that you've created and they start floating around in the water. So what you can do is go back in the next day, count up everything that's in the water, and you don't miss any that way. But that is really labour intensive with all the disruption issues of kind of pulling them out of your greens. Um, But it's a super accurate way of counting what was in that plug.
0: Yeah, it does seem a bit impractical, that one. Uh, maybe maybe one for the researchers rather than the green keepers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's about finding the right method for the right place. The, the other method that I've seen used quite successfully is water traps. So this works better in football, um, but you can kind of set out ice cream tubs and dig them down into the surface and sink them down uh, and then fill them with water. And then what you've really done is created this trap where anything wandering over the top just kind of falls in and drowns and floats around in that water bucket. Uh, it's good and easy way to get an idea of what level of activity you've got out there, but you do end up with lots of ice cream tubs buried in your greens. Um, so it's not perfect by any shape or form, but it's another interesting way I've seen you.
0: Yeah, not ideal that one, Glenn, I would say. No, not ideal at all. But
1: you did ask me for different methods. Um,
0: yeah, no, it's interesting. I do yeah. suspect at some
1: point that I will develop some kind of camera system to monitor movement overnight. Uh, We're not there yet from a technology point of view. Um, So just one to watch for the future. Uh, But from a trial point of view, the sheets aren't great. So it doesn't get a lot of support from some of the research bodies. And because there's no guarantee that when you put these one square meter sheets out that I've spoken about, that the leather jackets you find underneath them uh, actually came from that bit of soil underneath and They can kind of wander in from other areas. So from a trials point of view, it's a bit of a noisy method um, The the results you get aren't super accurate. So for research purposes, one square meter sheets aren't great. But for a golf course, I think this is the best way of getting a really quick snapshot to build this picture of exactly what's going on and help us guide our strategies.
0: Yeah, you know, because I think from my point of view, we're not trying to conduct scientifically robust research here. What we're trying to do is is help greenkeepers and course managers get a decent understanding of their own infestation levels and where they might be located to help guide them the maintenance programmes. You know, you, you did sort of hint at it actually before, Glenn. You know, will the effectiveness of the sheeting vary depending on the temperatures. Sure, it's something we've got to be really
1: aware of and it's not a perfect method. There are lots of influencing factors. You've got soil moisture will influence it as well. Temperature is one of those things. But the more we do, the more we understand. And I think that's why December is so critical because we've got a mild period or it's more likely we're going to have a mild period now where the leather jackets are just getting to a size where we could see them. We roll the clock forward into January and those temperatures are reduced. We're less likely to see them. So December is kind of our opportunity before we go into the colder months of the year to get a real handle on what's going on to guide our strategies through January, February, March
0: an early sight on things would always be good that's really great Glenn. thanks for that there's, and of course there's you know all the other content in the previous con- uh, podcast that, that you know that people can reference as well but December sounds to me uh, like a time when we really do need to start building that picture of what's actually going on and, and what might be on the horizon
1: yeah and if anyone actually gets into this and really commits to it please feel free to share those numbers with me uh, I'm quite happy to be this central hub, this leather jacket hub of all the information to help share it with people. The more information we can gather, the better a picture we can build. And send that information if you've got any or you want to get in touch to glenn.kirby at syngenta.com. Double N on the Glen, please. Uh-huh.
0: So that's it for another month, Glenn. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode. If you liked it, then please spread the word or leave a review. And now I can see Christmas on that horizon, Glenn. So all that remains is for us to be the first, six weeks early, Glenn, to wish everyone a happy Christmas.
1: Yes, absolutely. Enjoy it, everyone, and make sure you take the pressure off. Uh, look, look out for our next podcast, all about January which will be out sometime before Christmas.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, So, look, Glenn, happy Christmas and uh, happy Christmas to everyone else out there. Thanks, Henry. Happy Christmas to you too. Am I allowed to wish people
1: happy Christmas in next month's episode as well, Henry?
0: No, Glenn, but you can be the first to say Happy New Year. Excellent. Those festivities aren't over yet. Just beginning, Glenn. Merry Christmas to one and all.
1: Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, oh, oh.